0: Good morning. I want to start by, by praying for our time. And also, there was a, a really big earthquake in Ecuador last night, um, apparently a 7.8 magnitude. So I want to pray for that, too. Lord God, we, we do lift up the people in Ecuador right now. Um, can't imagine so much destruction. We pray that the, the people who are still trapped, we pray that you would hear their cries for help, that you would provide um, You'd provide the equipment needed to, to move earth, to the, the, the rescuers needed to, to come save them. We pray that you would, you would help their army army to preserve order, to, to protect against people looting and making this even worse than it already is. We ask that you'd be with them, that you'd help them in the midst of all this. And Lord, we pray for our time this morning. We thank you for your word, your, your word that is truth. And we ask that you would bless it, that it would sink into our head and our heart ultimately to our hands, Lord, as we, we live it out. Bless this time, may it be for your glory. Amen. Well, my name is Chris. I am a student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. It's my third year there, starting to think about the end. And I didn't know Scott was from Minnesota. I'm a Minnesotan as well, as we said up there, Minnesota. I'm also a pastoral apprentice here. I've been here a couple years now. And what all that means is I'm, I'm training, I'm getting experience, and God willing, in maybe a, a year or two, I might be pastoring somewhere, so we'll see what happens that way. I know a lot of you. Um, for those of you who don't know me, and even for those who, who do, I want to share a few facts you, you might not know about me. When I was a freshman in college at the University of Minnesota, I was on a research group. It was with a bunch of high-energy physicists, and we were building a neutrino detector. There's Fermi Lab here in Chicago, and they shot neutrinos through the earth that were detected in a mine in northern Minnesota. So I was a part of that. That was pretty cool. Also, when I was in college, I, I studied abroad, and I played in the basketball league while I was there with some professionals in Australia's NBL. In college, I also I, um, was a research associate at one point at uh, a level one trauma center in Minneapolis, in an emergency room. Since college, I've worked in IT, health care, education, church ministry, and, and actually finance, too. Um, I was actually once on a first-name basis with the, the tax director at Best Buy's corporate office. And just in case you're not skeptical yet, I hardly ever sin, too. All those statements, not the last one, but all those statements are technically true, but they're pretty misleading. I say that because we live in a, a world of illusions, and oftentimes these are the sort of impressions you get from people. Especially if you're, you're interacting with people on social media. People just project the, the best parts of themselves there. We live in a world where um, models in, in advertisements, people in movies, there's so much photoshopping, there's so much makeup that you'd hardly even recognize these people in real life. We live in a world where the media is highly manipulated. I, some of you know Donald Childs, and he shared an article on Facebook that I read a couple weeks ago. It was about a, a man named Andre Sepulveda, He's a guy who's in prison now, but for about a decade, he was hacking elections all over South America. At one point, he had 30,000 Twitter bots, and he was using that to make things go artificially viral. He was setting the conversation online. And so we live in a world where our media is highly manipulated. Things we buy, right? I bought over-the-counter allergy medicine a little while ago, and I opened the box. Less than a quarter of the volume of that box was filled with anything besides air, we hear of food companies sponsoring studies to, to show that their products are not bad for us. Genetically modified strawberries are as big as a small apple and as red as a cherry, and yet they taste like nothing. And then, in case all that's not enough, I'm up here wearing somewhat professional attire, but there's a good chance later this week, in between my work as a tutor that I do in, in the evenings, I'll be somewhere in the northern burbs, curl up in my backseat, taking a nap after eating a burrito from 7-Eleven. All right? Maybe not what you'd expect. Unless you know me. Then you're like, Chris, that's what we expect from you. <laughs> we live in a world full of illusions, and today we're talking about the ninth commandment. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is from Exodus 20, verse 16. Some of the preachers we've had in this Ten Commandments series have had their work cut out for them. It's been hard for them to explain how some of these commands are. We're not formally under the Old Covenant anymore, but that doesn't mean we just throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's, there's still some level of relevance for us in, in, under the New Covenant. My challenge that, that way is not so difficult, right? We, we were not supposed to lie then and we're not supposed to lie now. Lying is maybe a little bit more complicated than, than you might think at first, though. And so um, I challenge you to, to, to think about that today. I found a number of articles that all estimated maybe we lie about ten times a week I'll talk about one of those as we go. I think we can all agree that we, we hate lying. When we know someone's lying to us, there's just something in us that makes our blood boil. Maybe it goes back to that, that primordial game of dodgeball in elementary school where you threw the ball, you saw it bounce off the other kid's arm, and they didn't go out of the game. They just sort of hung around and said, no one saw that, right? So much rage at a young age. We hate lying because... It, it covers up injustice. It covers up the strong taking advantage of the weak, the, the clever taking advantage of the naive, the betrayer taking advantage of the trusting. And we hate lying because it's insulting. When a person lies to you, it's almost like there's this implicit lack of intelligence that's assumed on your part. The guy who sold me my car last week, he said, oh, it's never been in an accident before. I can see body damage around the wheel. Like, something had to hit that, Right? Or when people tell you nice lies, it's it's insulting because it's almost like they're saying, I don't think you can take the criticism. I I don't think you're strong enough to to cope with reality here. We hate lying because it's it's foolish and we see the effects, we see how it plays out. People lie, they tend to to bury themselves, they get tangled in a web. The fall is much harder than it has to be once that web finally breaks. And it would be better if they just came clean and faced the music. We, We all make mistakes. And we hate lying because in so many ways, we, we depend on things being the way they appear to be. Expectations of support from people that you're in relationships with. Expectation that the people on your team will, will hold up their end of the assignment or the project. Expectations that the things we buy will do the thing that the box says they will do. And when things aren't the way they, they say they will be, the, the way they appear to be, not only are we disappointed, but... But we often feel embarrassed that we believe the lie. Think of the, the nutrition supplement that promises, you know, if you, if you just take this, you'll be twice as strong. Or the, the beauty cream that says, if you take this, it'll take 10 years off your face. Right? you feel foolish. Did I actually think that would work? Or the, the boss who manipulates your motivation by giving you a false promise. You ask yourself, how didn't I see that one coming? Or even more seriously, if, if someone in your family friend, someone you're in a relationship with, if they just straight up lie to you, not only do you feel hurt and disappointed, but on some level you feel ashamed of yourself for actually believing it. And so for good reason, we hate it when people lie. Today, uh, as we look at what the Bible says about lying, the ninth command is at the foundation here. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. This idea of of bearing false witness, it's comes from a a legal context, right? There's a trial going on. Someone might be accused of a crime. I don't know when the last time that you were tempted to bear false witness against your neighbor in court was. Um, Maybe like a lot of us sojourning here in Evanston, you don't even know your neighbor. But this is what it meant in the the context of the, the ancient Israelites. They didn't have sophisticated forensic science like we do today. Right? They, they couldn't run blood tests. They couldn't run paternity tests. They couldn't match fingerprints. They relied much more heavily on the testimony of personal eyewitnesses. And in, that, in the ancient Near East, many more crimes were punishable by death than they are today. A person bearing false witness could have devastating consequences. The law that God gave to the Israelites, it was a huge step forward from the other ancient Near East law codes. Other law codes would say if if there was a witness who accused someone, that person could be condemned on the testimony of one witness. God's law in Deuteronomy 19, Numbers 35, it it specifies one witness is not enough. There had to be two or three witnesses. And then also the, the accuser, if that person was accusing someone of a crime, there was actually a practice that if stoning was called for, that person had to throw the first stone. The logic there is, if you're going to lie about someone, that's, that's going to burden your conscience. But if you're going to lie and then you have to throw the first stone, that's going to make that a lot more intense. Deuteronomy 17.7 speaks to that. And then in Deuteronomy 19.18-19, it actually says that if someone was found to be bearing false witness, that person would have to take the punishment that the accused person would have had to take. So when the law God provided, it was strongly encouraged, strongly discouraged to falsely testify. The Ninth Command highlights what is perhaps the worst form of lying, lying to deliberately harm someone. And if anyone's wondering, like, is there a time when, when lying's not as bad? Maybe it's even okay. I thought about raising that question, but I'm not going to. Um, I put something on the city if you want to look at that and you think of situations like the Underground Railroad or something like that. As I mentioned before, uh, I found a number of articles that talked about we, we probably lie a lot more often than we'd think. One article I found, it's called the, the Truth About Lying. I found this posted on Psychology Today. And disclaimer, um, I am no expert on the psychology of lying. I, I googled, I found this article, it seemed intriguing. Um, you can find it too if you google psychology of lying. It might be the first thing that pops up. It's also from 1997. Some, some of you are from 1997, so so don't hate on it. Lying hasn't changed in the last 20 years. This has gone back as far as Cain, right? This article found that 147 people, they tracked 147 people for a week, and on average, they lied one to two times a day. And this is apparently excluding, you know, the, the everyday, you know, someone asks you, how are you doing? You're not doing well, but you say, I'm doing fine. That doesn't count. These are deliberate attempts to, to convey false impressions. And I would caution you, in case you're saying, like, that's, that's not me. I don't know who those people are. I'm guessing most of us don't look at ourselves and think of ourselves as, as liars, per se. But if these, these articles are right, this ha- probably happens a lot more than we even realize ourselves. And so I challenge you today, as we talk about this, to, to critically assess yourself. For the remainder of the message, I want to reflect together on three reasons why we lie. And then for each of those, I'm going to give you a corresponding reason why we shouldn't lie. Okay? Oh, reason number one, we lie to protect ourselves. Think Abraham and Sarah in the Bible, right? Genesis 12, Genesis 20. Abraham and Sarah are going into Egypt. Abraham knows that his wife is is an attractive wife. He's worried that Pharaoh will have him killed so that Pharaoh can have his wife. Solution? Sarah, dear, why don't you just tell them you're my sister, not my wife? Then they won't kill me. So they do that. only problem is, Pharaoh actually did take her as his wife. You can imagine Sarah's being led over to his chamber and looking back at Abraham like, now, now's the time, you can, you can say something now. Abraham's just like, ah, I'm not sure what to do here. Abraham had a promise from God, right, that, that God was going to make him into a great nation. And yet he didn't trust that promise. He took matters into his own hands. He lied. He was even willing to give over his wife to another man. Pretty sure Pharaoh wasn't just looking to have dinner with her. And then in Genesis 20, he does the same thing again, different king, King Abimelech. And at this point, he's even received a specific promise that he's going to receive a son through Sarah, specifically. does the same thing. Fortunately, both times, God intervened before something bad happened. We were talking about this the other day, and Pastor John pointed out, he's like, you've got to wonder what that moment was like when Sarah came out of Abimelech's tent back into Abraham's it's the icy silence. If we see this pattern in Abraham, Abraham is held up as one of the greats of faith, right? If we see this pattern in Abraham, we should realize how deeply this goes in humans. We are bent on deception. We need to take this seriously. Many of us can think of times in our own lives when we either lied or were tempted to lie to protect ourselves. I think of my first job after college. I was working as a consulting analyst at a technology company, I was on my second project, it was something I was excited about, it was, it was considered a, a more prestigious role than the first one I was on, and so our client team, the, the company that we were working for, they had a, a lead, his name was Jan Willem, or Jan Willem, a Dutch guy, he had a little bit of a temper. Uh, I, I know zero Dutch, but I can still remember a couple phrases he would utter, and I'm pretty sure if I said them from a pulpit in the Netherlands, I would be asked to step down. Right, he, he was not shy about walking around the office cursing in Dutch. Well, two weeks into my role, he comes to me Friday afternoon and says, Chris, I'd like to meet with you Monday morning to learn about your work. Okay. My managers have flown home for the week. They're no longer there to intercede for me. And Monday morning, they, they wouldn't be back yet. So, so I have this to look forward to over the weekend. Had the suspicion that he, he might be there to grill me a little bit. But sure enough, re, right away, he leads off. What's your experience with SAP? that the technology we were working with. Okay, this was the moment, right? Jan Willem was kind of high up. If he wanted to, he could have had me removed from the project. I was there with a consulting company. I was supposed to be, have some specialized knowledge here. That's why they were paying me to be there, paying my company to pay me to be there. And so I could have, could have dressed it up a little bit, could have said something like, well, you know, I've, I've received some training from my company. I'm getting more focused training right now, and I'm going to keep, you know, picking things up as I go. I knew what he was asking though. He wanted to know, are you a specialist? Does it make sense for us to be paying to have you here? And part of me was frustrated, the sort of unspoken expectation to pretend anyways. And I just came out and I said, no, no experience. None? Not until the last two weeks that I've been here. No, I see. Do you have data management experience in general? I did some of that in my last project, but it it wasn't like it was the, the focus of my role by any means. I'm pretty sure that's not what he was told when I was brought on to this project. It was tempting to, to lie to try and cover, cover it up, make it a little bit more palatable. And I'm so glad that I just came forward and was just honest about it. He appreciated it, obviously. Um, it opened the door for a much more healthy working relationship than it would have otherwise been. Um, I wasn't removed from the project. I got to, got to stay. And actually, as I eventually rolled off, he told me, my team and I have a lot more trust for you than we do for most of the people on your team. So, so that was big. And I don't want to paint myself to be better than I really am. There were times where I, where I did play games and wasn't as forthcoming as I should have been. Fortunately, that time I had enough sense to, to not lie. And so we're tempted to lie to protect ourselves. We shouldn't lie because it's false protection. It won't work. If you think of... You know, the medical condition, if you're just treating the symptoms and you're not actually treating the problem, the symptoms are just going to keep reappearing again. That's kind of what lying can become. We try to cover things up and it doesn't really fix the problem. It just keeps extending it. If you think back to my story, what would have happened if, if I had lied, and even if I had been able to convince him? It's not like he wouldn't have been able to, to see my work. That, that would have showed sooner or later. And I suspect that the whole reason he initiated that meeting was because he already started to sense that. Lying false protection. It usually doesn't work. And, and even if it works against people for a little while, it certainly won't work against God, right? Can't pull the wool over God's eyes. When the Bible talks about what, what God thinks of lying, I'll just share two passages from the Psalms with you. In Psalm 5 6, it speaks addressing God, and it says, You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors bloodthirsty and deceitful people. And then Psalm fifteen one to three. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who gets to be with God is what this is saying, what this is asking. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, who speaks truth in his heart, and who does not slander with his tongue. Those who lie don't get to be with God, it's those who speak truth. It's intimidating to think of God punishing liars. It's supposed to be intimidating. This is supposed to scare us away from lying, right? It's, we, we know that one day every liar will be exposed. The the person who was in the car accident with you and lied about what happened and, and now your insurance is higher. The journalist taking quotes out of context and slandering the person they're writing about. The coworker who shifts the blame at work. One day they will be exposed. And so if you're tempted to think like, I need to, I need to keep up here, I need to to go along with the norm so that I can protect myself, I promise you it's not worth it. It it won't work. It won't work against God for sure. It's false protection. We often lie to ourselves about our own failings. We find something ugly about ourselves, and rather than being honest with ourselves, we we sort of lie to ourselves to cover it up. And in that sense, you might think of lying as being something like like a second sin, right? Something initially happens... And then you lie to try and react to it. And instead of lying to to cover up reality, to to hide from yourself, I would actually challenge you to to use this temptation to lie as sort of a diagnostic. Some commands are easier to sense when you're breaking than others. It's it's easier to sense when you're being dishonest or when you're stealing or committing adultery or some form of sexual immorality or or murder or violence against someone, someone. It's easier to sense when you're breaking those commands than when you're doing something like idolatry. It tends to be a more deeply embedded thing in our heart. If you're tempted to lie, ask yourself, what am I trying to protect? What am I placing fear towards when I should be placing more fear towards God? Or on the other hand, if you're lying to try and get something, ask yourself, what do I want more than I want to be in harmony with God? Use the temptation to lie as a diagnostic of what you're tempted to idolize. The first reason we lie is to protect ourselves. The second reason we're sort of alluded to is we lie to, to get things, get things that we're not supposed to receive. You want things to, to go a certain way, and you're willing to fudge on the truth a little bit just to provide a little bit more assurance that they'll go the way you want them to. Someone in my ethos group shared a story recently about um, a friend of hers, and it was a, a couple. They were engaged. The husband had previously let on that, that he had struggled with pornography. But he hadn't talked about how serious this problem was. And the temptation, I think, on his part was, was to let it ride until they were married. Fortunately, he came clean ahead of time. It sounds like there was some drama, but they did get married. But you think of the, the temptation on his part. The temptation is to just cover up the truth a little bit, to grasp hold of that marriage that wasn't quite his yet. We lie to try and get things. We lie to to save money or get money. Some of you might be lying to Netflix and saying that you're someone you're not. You might be violating the terms of agreement there. I saw an estimate that said probably about 50% of resumes have at least one falsehood on them. We lie to get material things. We lie to get honor, a reputation that we don't deserve. There is a devastating example of this in Acts 5. Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira, they were a husband and a wife, and they knew of, of Barnabas. And the previous chapter, it talks about how Barnabas sold a field and gave all of the money. He gave, and gave it and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was an incredible act of generosity. Gave it to their feet, let them use for their disposal to, to serve the poor, to further the ministry. Well, Ananias and Sapphira see this, and they say, That's pretty cool. Like, people are talking about him a lot. Maybe we'll do that too. And so they sell a field, except they come and they bring some of the money to the apostles' feet. Now, they were under no obligation to sell their field at all, to give any of their money. They would have been completely fine if they hadn't. But when they came and they laid the money at the apostles' feet, they were in effect saying, we're doing the same thing Barnabas did. Except that they weren't. Barnabas wasn't doing this for admiration. They were, and they didn't actually do it. First, Ananias comes in, lays down the money. Somehow, the the Holy Spirit tells Peter, something's going on here. Peter says, Ananias, you have not lied to men, but to God. God takes his life on the spot. He falls. A few hours later, his wife, Sapphira, comes in, not knowing what's happened. She tells the same lie God takes her life too. In the early church, God made use a couple powerful signs to make a few things very clear. And one of those is that in the community of God's people, there is no place for lying to lift ourselves up. There's no place for it. One commentator, I read he hit a quote, he said, "If there's one thing God hates, it is the lies that Christians tell to make themselves look more righteous than they really are." If there's one thing God hates, it is the lies that Christians tell to make themselves look more righteous than they really are. Some of you are lying. You're lying to your ethos groups. You're lying to your D groups. You're lying to close friends. You're making yourselves look more righteous than you are. And it's discouraging people. It's getting in the way of the gospel doing its work. It's holding your group back. And it needs to stop. We, We all need to stop this. We lie to get things we don't deserve. We shouldn't lie because God will satisfy our desires with good things. God will provide you with what you need. He is our portion. In Psalm 103.5, this is a line that I just love that says, God will satisfy your desires with good things. Think about that. It's a simple idea. It's a wonderful idea. Whether it's something material that you need or a sense of, of... Self-respect, significance. God is the one who can supply these things for us. We we can't manufacture them for ourselves. Psalm 127 says that unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build in vain. And actually, there's a line I love in verse two of that same Psalm 127 that says, God gives to his beloved even in their sleep. So there's there's two paths we can choose here. We can be the person who lies, we can be the person who's always looking back, trying to cover their tracks, scrambling. Or we can be the person that God gives to even in their sleep. Call me crazy, I think Psalm 27, that's, that's the better route to go. If you don't trust God to, to provide, if you try to take matters into your own hands, you'll miss out on the, the joy of getting to see God provide in surprising ways. I'll tell a, a short version of a story from last summer. As I approached the summer, I, I wasn't sure how I was going to pay all my bills. I, I had regular cost of living, I had summer tuition that I had to pay for. Um, also, my car needed to be replaced, too. My mechanic had started to refer to me as a regular. And it's okay if your server refers to you as a regular. It's not okay if your mechanic refers to you as a regular. That's, that is an expensive relationship. And as I was approaching the summer, I had six weeks until uh, my class started, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do for six weeks? You know, maybe I could, could tell someone I could work for longer so that I can get that job, and then five weeks in, give my notice and say, you know, I'm taking a class, that would be lying. It occurred to me that, that if I signed up for Uber, I could just drive when I wanted to. And long story short, I did, and it was great. wouldn't necessarily recommend doing it anymore. It's kind of changed. Well, well here's how this happened. I needed a car, like I said. Now, the, the first year I was here in Chicago, I lived a quarter mile down from JJ's Auto in Highland Park. And I heard the shop was good. I went there, and the first time I was there, it just so happened that the guy who walked out with the alternator that had been replaced was my friend JR, who I'd been playing basketball with all winter at LA Fitness. So that was cool. And a year later, I was looking at a car, and he, he actually went with me to look at this car out of a parking lot of Craigslist. And this guy who sold it to me, his name was Frankie. Name wasn't Frankie. Signed a different name on the title. Kind of sketch. Lying about all sorts of things with this car. Well, my friend JR pulls up in a spotless version of the exact same car he specialized in working on, these. And he just starts itemizing stuff. You'll need to fix that. That'll be $300. That'll be $500. If you want to fix that, that'll be $200. knew exactly what I was getting into. And so this guy Frankie, he says to me afterwards, you brought the backup. And I love this story because it's so cool to think back to how God set the solution in motion over a year before I even knew the problem, that there was going to be a problem. And I love this story because having, seeing the way that God opened that door, it, it made driving so much more enjoyable. It just kind of had the sense that like, God intended me for to do that for that time. It was, it was good. If you don't wait for God, if you try to manufacture your own solution, you, you lie, you take things into your own hands, you'll miss out on seeing him provide in surprising ways like that. And you'll also miss out on the opportunity for your faith to be stretched and to grow. So far, we've talked about two reasons why we lie. We lie to protect ourselves. We lie to get things that we don't deserve And finally, we lie because on some level, our broken, sinful nature just doesn't like the truth. The truth is that there is a God over us. There is an authority. That's where these commandments come from. He's the one who says you should live this way and not that way. All of us were designed, were created to live in relationship with God. And and it's not fun to think of how spectacularly we failed to live up to expectations that way, to live out what we were created for. Romans 1 speaks of the the great exchange that all humanity is engaged in. Because we didn't like this truth of there being an authority over us, and and we didn't like the idea that, that we were created to honor and acknowledge him. We created our own reality. I'm going to read excerpts of Romans 1, starting in verse 18. It speaks of people who, by their ungodliness and their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It goes on in verse 25. It says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They served the creature rather than the creator. And then in verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice, it goes on, a laundry list of human evil. This passage describes the great exchange that all humanity has engaged in. It attributes mankind's unbelief not to our inability to know, but more to our active, willful decision to decide against the truth of God. And so it says, God gave humanity over to unbelief. He gave us over to futile thinking. It's almost like he's saying, look, I've, I've made things, I've revealed myself, I've made things clear. You don't want to acknowledge that truth? Fine. You can believe what you want. You'll be given over to a debased mind. You'll be given over to sin. If you want to believe a lie about yourself, about God, he will let you. He'll even let you believe it, if you want. Ultimately, our aversion to, to what the truth really is. It, it's rooted in a desire to exchange worship of God for worship of something else. That's what the passage says. When we paint a better picture of ourselves, when we dress ourselves up, usually there's an element of us wanting the admiration of other people. We want other people to adore us. And on some level, it's like we want to be another person's object of worship and stand in the place of God for them. This is at the root of the the lie that Satan told in the garden to Adam and Eve. He, He said, It's not that if you eat this fruit, you will die. It's that you'll be like God. He's holding out on you. You deserve better. There's a sinful impulse in all of us that wants to cover up the truth, that wants to present ourselves, not according to reality, but present ourselves on some level to be God ourselves. And that instinct, it needs to be killed. The way we fight that is we engage in true worship of God. The best weapon against false false worship is true worship. And so we lie because we don't like the truth. We shouldn't lie because it covers up the gospel. If we lie, we're implicitly saying that that we don't like reality. By definition, though, the the gospel truth is the good news of the truth. Reality is good for us. It's almost a modern-day proverb that says, if something looks too good to be true, it, it probably is. That's not the case with the gospel. The gospel is better than you can imagine, and yet it really is true. There's no way we could have protected ourselves against God's punishment, and yet God himself provided a solution. He saved us, He promises us eternal life with Him in His presence through the sacrificial death of His Son. His Son, who stood in our place, who died the death that we deserve to die, and then He got out of the ground. Some of you may not identify as, as believers of Christ yet. And ultimately, this is, this is the, the primary claim of our reality. Did Jesus get out of the ground? I would argue that there are a lot of people who saw him before he died, saw him die, and, and saw him afterwards too. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is very good for us. This is our reality. We don't need to hide reality. Why would we? It's, it's, it really is this good. Now, Satan, reality is not so good for Satan, right? Satan has been defeated. Satan will be crushed, and there is no plan of redemption for him. Of course he is going to lie. But we've been reconciled. We're no longer, we no longer belong to Satan. We're no longer a citizen of his world of false realities. Instead, we are called to be people of the truth. No longer people who, who propagate and purvey this, this false illusion, illusionary world. We're to be people who... Point to the truth of God. Now, being people who point to the truth, it starts with acknowledging the truth about ourselves first. If we're doing life together, if we're a community of people who have been reconciled to God, our sins have been forgiven, and our sin and our shame has been washed away, and we can't be honest with each other, there's something wrong with that. That would seem to suggest that we don't actually believe this. We need to be real with each other. During my first year at Trinity, a couple years ago now, um, our first year there, we have a a number of psychological and personality assessments, and then we we meet, have a few sessions with the counselor afterwards. In one of my sessions, I was meeting, and the counselor asked about my my history of sexual sin, and I I opened up about a history of using pornography. It's, It's something I'm ashamed of. By God's grace, it's something that's usually not a significant temptation now. As I opened up about this, I opened up about how I had confessed to other people and this counselor just brightened up and she said, isn't it great when we can just be honest and receive grace? She's absolutely right. When we can be real with other people, when we can trust that they are for us and not against us and and that they're going to talk to God about our junk and not talk to other people, it is a beautiful thing. It's also a very freeing thing. We get past our sin and our shame not just by confessing it to God, but by confessing it to godly people that we can trust. Godly people that will help point out the errors that we're believing, the lies that we're believing about ourselves. This is something that as a church, we have supernatural resources to do with each other. And so if we have the ability to do that, let's actually do it. When Ben Wilson kicked off this sermon series, he talked about how being in the the new covenant with Jesus— Instead of the old covenant under the law, it's almost like having a Ferrari instead of a Ford Taurus. And so, if we have a Ferrari, let's actually take it for a spin, right? Open up with someone, someone you can trust. Open up about the the guilt that burdens you. If you don't, you'll continue to lie to yourself, you'll continue to cover it up, you'll believe things that just aren't true. You'll probably continue to believe the lies that the devil will whisper in your your ear to, to amplify that guilt, and you'll stay stuck. In your sin. As we've seen, God hates it when we pretend to be righteous. It covers up the work of the gospel. If we don't realize how sinful and bent on evil we really are down to our core, and we don't realize how incredible it is that God, in spite of how pure and holy He is, He still loves us, if we don't understand those two things, even as contrary as they might seem, we can't understand the gospel. As one of my theology professors said, to minimize sin is to cut the nerve of the gospel. So don't lie. Don't lie to protect yourself. Don't lie to get things. Don't lie to hide from reality. You don't need to. I'll summarize the the big idea of this message this way. Do not twist reality. God is your portion and your protector. Do not twist reality. God is your portion and your protector. Going back to the the article that I mentioned before, it said something interesting towards the end. It said that people who are depressed have less of a tendency to lie, less of a tendency to lie about themselves, to to lie about other things, and it even suggested that perhaps a certain amount of self-delusion was good for a person's mental health. I hope you see that 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 is not good advice, right? It's probably good research. You know, there's perhaps something to, to this observation that they found, that a person who is, has less of an infatuated view of themselves might be more prone to depression. But that doesn't mean deluding yourself is good for your mental health, right? I'm going to read this last paragraph from the article. Certainly anyone who insists on condemning all lies should ponder what would happen if we could reliably tell when our family, friends, colleagues, and government leaders were deceiving us. It's tempting to think that the world would become a better place when purged of the deceptions that seem to interfere with our attempts at a genuine communication or intimacy. On the other hand, perhaps our social lives would collapse under the weight of relentless honesty, with unveiled truths destroying our ability to connect with others. The ubiquity of lying is clearly a problem, but would we really want to do away with all our lies? Let's be honest. If you take a view of the world that does not put God in the equation, that is the best you can do. Reality is depressing. Lie to yourself. Instead of letting us settle for the, the hopeless solution in, behind this logic, I want to tell you that, that if you face the unveiled truth of who you are, as terrible as it might seem, If you face the unveiled truth about who you are, it will wreck you. And that's a good thing. You need to be destroyed because you need to die so that you can have new life in Christ. When you face the unveiled truth of who you are, but you also take hold of the unveiled truth of the gospel, that there's a God who knows your sin ten times better than you do and still loves you, then the gospel will be the good news that it actually is. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us commands that show us how to live, how to live in harmony with you, how to live in harmony with each other. And we thank you for your truth. I ask for all of us that you would give us courage to be truthful, whether we're tempted to protect ourselves or whether we're just ashamed of the, the things we'd rather not be truthful about. Give us the courage to do that. It's scary, but it's something we need to do. Lord, bless us as we seek to honor you with our speech. Amen.